Welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. The first podcast on iTunes with scratch and sniff cover art. Unfortunately, the only scent we can afford is touchscreens. I am Scott, your co-host. Joining me is the man who once briefly held the Guinness World Record for world's youngest person, Sean. That's that's true. Uh, I have some good news and some bad news for our listeners. Uh, I'll start with the bad news. Unfortunately, we had to fire Lily for forgetting who George Lucas was a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but, you know, we can't tolerate that kind of ignorance, I guess you could say. Uh, the good news is, I created a Lily soundboard, so we can still have a three-person discussion. Fantastic. So, uh, Lily, how you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Scott? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Sean, you want to say hi to Lily? Hey, Lily, how's it going? Uh, I'm, I'm just skippy. That's how, how about you, Sean? Doing great, thanks. <laughs> all right, all right, Lily. She's getting a little too rambunctious already. I don't like this. <laughs> Actually, Lily is currently on assignment bottling Merlot on a French hillside, and she will be back in a few weeks. We hope. <laughs> in the meantime, this week we reviewed a show right out of my childhood. We watched an episode of the cartoon X-Men. That's not the Fox cartoon that many are familiar with, but the rarely seen or rarely heard of 1989 pilot for NBC entitled Pride of the X-Men. That's spelled P-R-Y-D-E. That's clever wordplay, as we'll see in uh, a few minutes. Now, if you'd like to follow along, this is available in its entirety on YouTube, but uh, it also had a home video release on VHS, and I, I checked on Amazon. They're actually still pretty cheap. Only a few bucks if you, for some reason, want to have a copy for your shelf. Now, Sean, I don't know if you were familiar with this before our reviewing it. You know, Scott, I, I am not familiar with this version of the X-Men series, this pilot. Um, I am very familiar, and I watched it quite a bit as a youngster, the Fox series. And also, the movies I am very familiar with. Um, Marvel is not so much my thing as it is yours. I'm more of a DC man. X-Men is about the experience I have and probably my favorite characters are from the X-Men in the Marvel Universe so I, I do like them but this is a first for me when you mentioned that this pilot existed um, I had never heard of this before and I was actually quite quite surprised by some of the things that um, it contained as we'll we'll go through and talk about oh really that's that's quite interesting Lily she's being sarcastic I think Lily I'm gonna uh, put you away okay yeah all right, no more Lily. Sorry. Yeah. I came upon this when I was probably around 13. Uh, I went into Toys R Us, and they had a display case of cheap Marvel VHS tapes. Each tape was a single episode from a series, like Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, some of the older series. I bought this thinking it was just an episode from the Fox series that maybe I hadn't seen before, only to find out that it was from a completely different series. Now, not until I got the internet, I always thought that this was just a series from the 80s that I had never seen. Later on, we'll find out that this is the only episode that exists. Yeah, very strange. Did you happen to see why they decided not to go forward with this pilot? Was there yes. any reasoning behind it? Yes, I actually did extensive research on uh, how we got this episode. Pride of the X-Men is loosely viewed as the pilot episode of the X-Men animated series that most people are familiar with from the mid-90s. It kind of is, and it kind of isn't. I put together uh, this 
timeline here. I try to simplify it as much as I could, so just bear with me here. Okay. Here's the history of this episode. First, I'll open with a little bit of trivia. In September 1963, the X-Men made their first appearance in X-Men number one. In 1966, the X-Men made their first animated appearance in a show called The Marvel Superheroes. And that's, you know, if you even want to call it animation, it was really like a crude predecessor to the modern-day motion comics that you see. Uh, here the X-Men make a small cameo appearance in Prince Namor the Submariner episode 12, entitled Doctor Doomsday. That's actually available on YouTube if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, it was originally intended to be the Fantastic Four, but because Grant Ray Lawrence didn't have the animation rights, the X-Men were substituted under the name Allies for Peace. They appear with their proper individual names and as originally designed by Jack Kirby in their black and yellow costumes. In the fall of 1968, a company called Perfect Film and Chemical bought out publisher Martin Goodman, who's the owner of Magazine Management Company, the then-parent company of Marvel Comics, and he made it a direct subsidiary. In 1973, Perfect Film and Chemical rebranded themselves as Cadence Industries. Now in 1981, Cadence Industries bought Deepa T. Freeling Films, who produced the cartoons of the Marvel Animated Universe for NBC. Uh, this consisted of Fantastic Four in 1978, Spider-Woman in 1979, Spider-Man in 1981, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends in 1981, and The Incredible Hulk in 1983. Now, the X-Men, pretty close to how we're going to see them in Pride of the X-Men, were featured in two episodes of Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. That's uh, A Firestar is Born in 1982 and The X-Men Adventure in 1983. Those are both available on Netflix if anybody wants to check those out. But officially, mm. those are in different continuity. It's also worth noting that the X-Men character Iceman is one of Spider-Man's amazing friends for the entire run of the show. In 1986... Cadence Industries liquidated and sold Marvel Entertainment Group to New World Pictures. Budgeting was so tight that they actually scaled RoboCop the animated series to 12 episodes, and they used the production budget for the unmade 13th episode to have Japanese animation studio Toei Animation create this Pride of the X-Men as a pilot for the next Marvel cartoon. Soon after they delivered the pilot, Marvel Entertainment Group started to have serious financial problems, and in January 1989 was sold to the Andrews Group, and that stopped production on pretty much every show except Muppet Babies. This put an end to any work that would have been done on the proposed X-Men animated series. Later, the Andrews Group acquired New World, which also included Marvel Productions. So finally, after all this, on September 16, 1989, which was a Saturday morning, Pride of the X-Men was aired as part of the block of Marvel cartoons known as the Marvel Action Universe. And this pilot is viewed as pretty much marking the end of this era of Marvel animation. Now, companies shuffled a little more. October 31st, 1992, through Saban Entertainment, X-Men the Animated Series was launched for the Fox Network's Fox Kids block, starting with the episode Night of the Sentinels Part 1. Now this time, X-Men lasted 76 episodes over five seasons. This wouldn't be the last time we get the X-Men in their own animated series. We also got X-Men Evolution in 2000, Wolverine and the X-Men in 2009, the Astonishing X-Men Motion Comics in 2009, and the X-Men Anime Series in 2011. So okay. I'm going to take a breath now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that was a lot of uh, a lot of talking there. <laughs> and I guess one thing I, I have a question about, and I was thinking about this. Now we know, especially with recent news, that of course Marvel is owned by Disney Corporation, and it has for a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, and we just had the news this past week that Spider-Man is now a Marvel Cinematic Universe character. Because it was owned by Sony, 
before. Sony uh, had the film rights to him, yeah. So now he's going to be actually in the next Captain America movie, I believe. Mm-hmm. Probably most likely the Avengers, other Marvel movies that come out in the timetable over the next five years or so. Where does the X-Men, who owns the rights to the X-Men? Because I know there's a lot of back and forth that we can't show the X-Men in other Marvel movies because of rights. Who owns them right now? Uh, 20th Century Fox. Do they own the animation rights to the X-Men at this point, or who owns... I'm not sure about animation rights. I don't know if those are separate from film rights. Okay. But, uh, yeah, they're they're so strict on keeping the X-Men franchise separate from the Marvel Cinematic Universe that the Avengers movies and all the, you know, single movies therein are not even allowed to reference mutants. Hmm. And that's why we're going to get... Two Quicksilvers now. And that, that's such a shame. I was about to mention that with Quicksilver because it was such a good character in The Last X-Men, Days of Future Past. And like you said, it's a totally different actor, basically a totally different character in the new Avengers. So it's such a shame that they can't just have all the characters in the same universe to make specific movies for all of them. You think of the whole Civil War, which I think is going to be on film sometime. Yeah, Civil War timeline. That's or, the next Captain America movie, I believe. Oh, it is. Okay, so it's, yeah, because Captain America is definitely involved in the Civil War. And Spider-Man also, yeah, big yeah. big character. Um, and the X-Men weren't so much involved in that storyline, if you're familiar with it from the comics. But it still would be nice to be able to reference them. And DC, I believe, has similar issues if you watch any of the DC TV shows, like Arrow, Smallville, that when it was on. Uh, you think of Gotham. They really shy away from putting different characters in the different, especially Bruce Wayne, Batman, and with Superman. But there's going to be a Superman, Batman movie. We'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes, yeah. And a Justice League movie down the road. But it's just so strange that they're all separated and you have all these corporate interests owning certain aspects of the company. When yeah. they still make comics under the same banner, you know. Mm-hmm. It's very, very bizarre. Very convoluted history, as I found even researching just the history of this one episode. So let's uh, take a look at this episode, Pride of the X-Men. We watched uh, the YouTube video that pretty much was an upload of the entire VHS tape. If you watch it from the standpoint of the VHS release, it'll start with a Spider-Man voter registration commercial from 1992. It's live action, it's dark with colored lights, it has creepy music, and it freaked me out when I was little. This is very bizarre. Just the location of how this was filmed... They made no effort to film this in any kind of reasonable background. It's basically in a (laughs) a cave, it seems like. Yes. And it's very dark, and there's like a light shining right on on Spider-Man. And it's like, at least you could kind of film it in, you know, the street maybe, or do something a little bit interesting with it. But I've never seen Spider-Man in a cave. Very bizarre. It's like they threw it together in in 20 minutes sort of deal. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very cheap uh, Spider-Man costume that that this actor's wearing. Uh, when I saw it, I'm thinking, who is this for? Is this for supposed to be for the parents? I mean, the the kids watching it aren't going to be old enough to register to vote. Maybe they would assume that they would remember it when they turned 18. I don't really know. Or they assumed that a lot of 18-year-olds plus were watching this. Yeah, I, I couldn't figure it out. So I actually tried to look this up, and I found a somewhat reasonable answer. If you look at the end of the PSA here, in fact, Spider-Man even signs his name as Spider-Man on the voter registration, which I don't think is valid. But uh, it says that it's a message from the VSDA. Yes. And what they were trying to do at the time is fight against what's called the first sale doctrine. And basically, it was to protect video rental rights. (laughs) So they wanted to 
allow VHS tapes to still be rented out. And so they threw this in at the beginning of their VHS uh, release. So basically to encourage people to vote so they could vote for this this measure? To fight against the first sale doctrine. To oh, uh, okay. al- allow people to still be able to rent videotapes. Well, that's, that's very specific. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> purpose. Uh, there's an interesting comment in the uh, YouTube video that talks about this Spider-Man video and basically references what we just talked about. And it said that you know, talking about Spider-Man signing his name on the voter registration card, someone's mentioned that it wouldn't be valid anyway because he would have to show proof of residency. And, <laughs> uh, and of course, he couldn't, you know, how was he going to say, Spider-Man, I'll residency? After, he can't say he's Peter Parker. Right. So he wouldn't be able to vote anyway, so it's kind of a, <laughs> a mixed message there. Spider-Man is going to vote. Very strange. So we get into the episode. It was written by Larry Parr. He is a writer-director from New Zealand. And uh, his other credits include the Smurfs, Heathcliff, Transformers, Fraggle Rock, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So standard Saturday morning fare from this era. Uh, It was directed by Ray Lee, whose credits also include G.I. Joe, Muppet Babies, Gem, Transformers. Pride of the X-Men is actually his last directing credit. He went on to do camera department stuff, production manager work, but this was actually his last directing credit. And I, I saw no problems with it. I thought it was a pretty well animated episode, but he moved on from that task. Also worth noting is that this is mostly influenced by Uncanny X-Men issues 129 to 139, minus the Dark Phoenix saga. As we'll get into, there's no Jean Grey or Phoenix character. She was already pretty much gone from the basic team. 129 is the first appearance of Kitty Pride, and 139 is the issue where she actually officially joins the X-Men. That's kind of like a arc that they condensed to this episode, introducing her to the team and then having her officially join. Quite introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so we start with a very 80s theme. This theme song freaked me out, and it stuck <laughs> in my head. I watched it, you know, a couple times to prepare for this, and it just is, like, resonating through my brain right now. X-Men, X-Men. X-Men, da-da-da. Oh. And, you know, I don't know, did you get a chance to listen to the lyrics of this? It's always been kind of hard X-Men. for me to hear, yeah. There, you know, I there was one lyric, and I heard some of it, you know, Magneto and this and that, and I heard this one lyric, and I, I went back, like, three or four times to try to figure out exactly what they're saying. And the lyric I heard said, X-Men tries like thunder. <laughs> and I'm like, tries like thunder? What the, what does that mean? <laughs> so I went back, I must be hearing it incorrectly. So I went back a few times, like I said, and every time, tries like thunder. And they're referencing the X-Men directly. X-Men tries like thunder. So I don't know what they're trying to refer to if they're just spouting whatever. It um, sounds like it. <laughs> so they're, they're trying like thunder, apparently. And they're coming your way. They're coming your way, yeah. <laughs> so very, very interesting, very, like you said, 80s theme music to this episode. It opens with a Stanley narration, which we'll see. He actually narrates well through this episode. He had narrated in Spider-Man and the Amazing Friends and things like that. I just got a, a kick out of what he was saying. He introduces himself as Stanley of Marvel Comics, warning you to look around you, your classmates, your friends. You never know which one of them may be a mutant. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't hear this when I was, you know, 10, because it probably freaked me out big time. <laughs> but interesting, so did you see, get any other research or see any other research why Stan Lee was involved or how he was involved in this episode particularly? I know, uh, at least in Spider-Man, his amazing friends, he, he narrated. He was very, Stan Lee was very much involved in uh, these Marvel Comics productions. 
As we know, he still does cameos to this day in the movies. But he's always been that central figure, so they use him to set up the the episode. And in Pride of the X-Men, he shows up a couple of times to further the uh, plot along. Yes. Or further the story along. So we start with an army convoy, and we see that Magneto is captured in some sort of force field in a truck. I don't know how they captured him in the first place. Looks like a milk truck. That's the first thing I said when I (laughs) saw that. Milk truck with the rings around it. Yeah. Uh, Like electricity rings. He mentions that he is from the Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists, which I put in my notes different times. Yeah, that would be, uh, there'd be no terrorist reference in there now. This was changed from the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants in the comics, which seems like a fine name to me. What's interesting is this episode kind of blends together the first two incarnations of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants that we see. Magneto originally in the 60s comics had Toad and uh, characters like that, and Mystique in the 80s had Blob and Pyro. I don't know really where White Queen fits into all this, but she also shows up in, in her early role as a villain. Yeah, White Queen, I never had heard of that character before. What, what are her powers? Um, I know she could turn asphalt into liquid, apparently. Did she have other powers besides that? What was her mutant skills? Well, White Queen, as she went by at this time, she was part of the Hellfire Club, which was uh, run by Sebastian Shaw. So all of the characters kind of had alter egos, that, or they had villain names that had to do with chess. So there was a White Queen, there was a Black Queen, there was a Black King. White Queen is commonly known today as Emma Frost. Oh, so she was in First Class then? Yes. It's Emma Frost, okay. Yeah, First Class tried to kind of have that Hellfire Club. Uh, I think they actually called the Nightclub Hellfire Club. Yeah. Yeah, she worked closely with Sebastian Shaw. So yeah, White Queen, she has telepathy. She, I guess in this episode, she can throw these uh, electric bolts for some reason. Yeah. Those were mainly her powers at this time. Later on, they added her ability to turn her form into diamond. One thing I noticed about this milk truck uh, transport, but when Magneto was confined in the converted milk truck, Mm -hmm. which I will keep on referring it to, one thing I always wondered, and, you know, they did this in the X-Men movies after Magneto was captured, you know, why don't they take him out of the suit he's in? You know, he's in captivity now, he's around this force field. I mean, you can't you can't take him out of the suit. You can't, you know, put him in prison garb. He has his helmet still, he has his cape, he has everything. It just seems odd to me. Unless they just captured him, but it seems like he's been in captivity for a while. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I, I guess, like you said, they probably just captured him and didn't want to take any chances of just stick him in the tube as is which brings a, a host of other questions about you know sanitary things and eating and that sort of thing but i guess we won't go there uh, but it's found that bizarre that he's just sitting there you know in this tube and everything's still on it's you know just like the day they capture them so white queen uh as you mentioned flies in and uses her psychic powers to make the soldiers think that their vehicles are sinking in quicksand Oh, that was it. Okay, so they weren't re- I, I didn't get that part. They weren't really weren't sinking then. No, no, she was just clouding their minds. Oh, okay, gotcha. She actually flies in for some reason. Flight is not one of her powers, but, uh, you know, if you have to make a quick entrance in animation, uh, that's how you do it. Also, kind of wearing her lingerie-type outfit the, from the comics, a little racy for Saturday morning. So after Magneto's rescued, uh, we cut to the X-Mansion for the first time. We see Kitty Pride here arriving in a cab, and uh, the cab driver's pretty creeped out of the X-Mansion. He doesn't want to be anywhere near that place, and he drives away. Because she asked him to wait, didn't she? I, yeah. I, 
Yeah, and he just said, no way. I'm, I'm... Bowtie, which is interesting. It looks <laughs> like a Sears repairman or something. Very classy cab service. Yeah, you don't usually see that in a cab driver in New York State. Can I comment on Kitty Pride's wardrobe for a second before we continue? Please do. One thing, the first thing I noticed when watching this was, I don't know if this was 1980s style, but what Kitty's wearing, she looks like a vagabond. Her pants <laughs> look like they're about four sizes too big. They're cinched up by a belt that's too big. And is she in dire straits? What's what's going on with Kitty Pride right now that she's wearing these pants that are very odd looking? And they, they bothered me the entire episode, to be honest with you. <laughs> that bell and just they're just like there's no loops on the pants or anything they're just kind of cinched there like you would see a a vagabond wearing yeah it is kind of uh, weird uh, baggy pants which kind of were the style i guess more towards 1991 or so with the mc hammer but uh, i don't think that's what they were going for there yeah very very bizarre we see that she has an invitation from professor x she walks into the mansion professor x projects himself we see like a transparent version of him wheeling around in the wheelchair he explains to her that he knows that she can walk through solid matter which is known as phasing and uh, he brings her into i guess kind of a control room where he is in his actual physical form and uh, we see behind him on a very big screen various clips of the x-men in action and I could see why Kitty would be a bit leery of the whole situation. I mean, seeing this projected form of the professor greeting you, the doors open by themselves, and just could be being sent a letter, ask you know, inviting you to come to the the mansion, would kind of freak me out too a bit. You know, basically saying, "Hey, outing you in your power." <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe a, a more of a a personal visit might have been in order to Kitty Pryde at this point. They should try work on their recruiting methods, or even uh, Kitty's parents. You know, go with her. Don't uh, just send her off because she got a letter, some you know, from some guy <laughs> yeah, saying, I know, I, "I know what you can do." I know you're a mutant, so and it's probably you know it's very illegal and looked down upon. So you better just show up here at this time, you know. So on the big screen, as I said, we see clips of the X Men. We get a a weird moment in this cartoon, which has always confounded me. Kitty says, "I thought the X Men were," and Professor X replies, "Mutants." Yes. Now he's shown saying yes to Kitty as an X-Men clip on the big screen behind him, and it's from a different angle, so it was actually drawn in. It's very confusing. I don't know if it was done as another take, and it was a close-up, and somehow that made its way to the clips that they superimposed behind them. I, I still don't know how that mistake happened, but it is very funny to to go back and see. It happens at the 4 minutes 15 second mark. I did notice that also, and that was very weird. <laughs> they would pop on like that. I'm guessing it was an animation mistake. I, I don't know. So we get some exposition now. He explains what Cerebro is. Uh, if you've watched the X-Men movies, you've been well familiar with what that is. We also see the Danger Room. And one by one, uh, Professor X not only explains who each individual X-Men are, he also gives their real names and a full detail of their powers. Who cares about their their privacy at this point? We start with Scott Summers, known as Cyclops. Right now in the Danger Room, they're kind of like in a hologram jungle setting, and Cyclops hits a tripwire and is faced by a large rolling cart with the image of a god on the top. I thought that was kind of strange because those are called juggernauts. Hmm. Kind of foreshadowing, I guess, who's going to be one of the villains. Yes, yes. Very good. Uh, we get Peter Rasputin, Colossus, dodging walls. At one point, he gets crushed, and Kitty seems very concerned. This may or may not be a nod to 
the fact that the two of them have a relationship in the comics. So she would eventually care for him very much. Yeah, she has the hots for him at this point, which is very good. <laughs> well, she's only 14. Which, you know, I was going to bring up later on, but another disturbing part of this is the fact that she's only 14. <laughs> and she, you know, she's taking this trip by herself and very disturbing, and especially when we see some of the other characters that come up here. I, I never knew that Colossus was, was uh, Russian. Oh, yes. Uh, do they, does he have an accent in the movies? I don't recall. Not in the movies. I don't know okay. if he's supposed to be of Russian descent, but no, they don't They don't give him the accent. He very much has the accent in this, however. Oh, yeah. I was like, whoa, I guess he's he's Russian. He, yeah. he pushes the segment of wall out uh, after implementing his power, and he says, he's good. <laughs> they really did a good job. Well, they kind of did a good job with accents in this episode. We'll be talking about that in a few minutes. Oh, yes, we have much to talk about. Yes. Uh, we could get Allison Blair next, who is the Dazzler. Her power is to transform sound into powerful bolts of light. She's uh, fighting some weird tentacled piranha orchids, I guess. Dazzler's kind of an interesting character. She was kind of in the lineup at this point. She was developed in 1980, and this power that she has stems from her original conception as a cross-promotional disco-performing character, and that was jointly created by Marvel Comics and Casablanca Records. Casablanca Records, of course, most commonly known as the labels of Kiss and Donna Summer. Hmm. I, you know, and she had the interesting power... A dazzler of uh, the gun hand when she fired the bolts of fillet at the uh, plants. Yes. She seems, I have a real problem with Dazzler as a character. She seems like her powers would be more of a annoyance. You know, turning sound into light is annoying to get light shined in your face, but I guess it's a more powerful beam of light. I, I'll give her that much in the, yeah. the cartoon. Still don't like the concept, though. I think it's a, it's a dumb power to have. It's like, it's like uh, Jubilee, I also think, has dumb powers. Yeah, very very similar, I guess you could say. She can make fireworks and she can break electronics. That's her Jubilee's powers. <laughs> so next we get Nightcrawler. Uh, he doesn't mention his name, Kurt Wagner. We see a little bit of his powers to teleport. And we get Wolverine after him. Wolverine here in this episode is in his brown and yellow costume designed by John Byrne. It made its debut in Uncanny X-Men number 139. And this was actually a costume that he wore for the longest in the comics. It was a run of 127 months. Hmm. Next, we get Storm, and her power is to control weather itself. Pretty funny moment where he says, it's not completely understood. <laughs> she always go with it. Her outfit, Storm's outfit, is a little uh, scantier, I guess you can say, than her usual, if I remember correctly, in the other animated series. It was more modest, I think, in the uh, Fox series, if I remember correctly. Yes. In fact, those were based on the 1991 Jim Lee designs, so everybody kind of had a brand new costume at that point. This was more of the, the 80s uh, version of these characters and their costumes. Finally, Professor X explains what he can do with his powers, although I think she pretty much understood that by the fact that he projected himself to her and told her things about herself that she never told anybody. Interesting fact about Professor X here is that he's voiced by John Stevenson. What's notable about John Stevenson is that he's one of the last surviving voice actors from the Flintstones. Okay. That's he played Mr. Slate, and he, at the time of this recording, is 91 years old. I'm glad he's still with us, and I did hear some Mr. Slate in there, so that's yeah. good to hear. I, I wasn't too off. I, I was looking at some of these uh, voice actors. A lot of them are longtime voice actors, done a lot of work, and many even to this day. The voice of 
Kitty Pride here is done by Kath Susie, who makes her second appearance here on Hitting Play. She also was Cubert Farnsworth on Futurama, oh. and, and a whole host of other characters over the years. Awesome, I didn't know that either. Excellent. Another thing, which I know will be of special interest to Sean, is that the actor that did Nightcrawler's voice in this cartoon, Neil Ross, uh, has also done many voiceovers in film, like especially radio broadcasts and things like that. Most notably, he was the voice that you could hear in the museum in Back to the Future Part 2. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a big Back to the Future fan. Bit the Biff Tannen Museum. The Biff Tannen Museum, yep. Narrator. So we get a moment now where all the X-Men are now called up to the danger room control room. Nightcrawler meets Kitty for the first time. Ed, a funny moment where he immediately just runs up to her and says, Oh, Fraulein, what a lovely vision you are. Please allow me. Yeah, very, very uh, creepy to me, um, Nightcrawler's voice in this episode. I know he has a uh, interesting accent, and it's not so bad in the movies, but he just really came on strong to Kitty Pride. I, I don't blame her at all how she reacted. Yes. Running up to her like this, and, you know, especially after you find out she's 14. He um, really wanted to kiss that hand. I guess so, but I could see her wanting to get away and, and phasing through the computer at that point. Yeah, she gets scared and phases through the computer, shorting it out and some way into the danger room where Storm, I guess, didn't want to listen to Professor X. She was still doing her training sequence. They all run back down and she's caught by Colossus. <laughs> Colossus says, it is good, little one. Colossus like rain. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I don't know why a, um, her phasing through a computer would short out, but I'm in IT and I've never seen that. Of course, I've never seen anybody phase through a computer, so what do I know? Next we get... A moment that I think we should uh, take the time to discuss. Wolverine here says, Oh, kids! Welcome, huh? Wait! She's not joining the X-Men, is she? She's just a kid! Yeah, this is the one point in the voice acting where I think they <laughs> made a mistake. Now, I, a question I have for you, Scott. Maybe you know this. When did they determine that Wolverine was Canadian? Was it, Was there maybe doubt at this point where this could have been realistic that they envisioned Wolverine as being Australian? Not at all. Okay, so it was, uh, it was in canon before this that he was definitely a Canadian-born individual. Very much so. Wolverine basically started as a low-level villain in the Incredible Hulk comics. Kind of a throwaway guy. Uh, when they relaunched the X-Men with Giant Size number one, John Byrne wanted Wolverine as part of it because John Byrne himself was Canadian. So he had a special fondness for the Wolverine character. There had been, in the comics, uh, clashes with the Canadian group Alpha Flight, which reveal that Wolverine has a history with them. And Wolverine was very much intertwined with characters from Canada at this point. And it was, even though his history was kind of ambiguous and cloudy uh we did know that there was definitely some canadian roots there okay so yeah we get a very australian wolverine and uh, i'm curious of why they did this but very odd to hear uh hear wolverine with this very australian accent it's it's very jarring not even dropping it down at all it's it's very australian like crocodile dundee australian Yes. Uh, this isn't even the first time we get the Australian Wolverine. As I mentioned, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, he has the Australian accent in those as well. I was uh, doing some research, and this is from the book X-Men, The Characters and Their Universe. According to Rick Holberg, who was a producer on the show, 
He said, I ended up being the voice director on the show, and I was forced to use the Australian version of Wolverine, which coincidentally foreshadowed the casting of Australian actor Hugh Jackman in the live-action X-Men film, because all of this Australian stuff was popular at the time. The Mad Max films, Crocodile Dundee, and so on. It was going to turn out, in the comics, that Wolverine was an expatriated Australian. The direction of that character, however, never got beyond the plotting stages, and Wolverine remained Canadian in the comics. Huh. So the 80s Australian revival really prompted this this move. And I can understand Marvel Comics, uh, or all comics in general, you know, they, they try to mimic pop culture, or they're, I should say, they're heavily influenced by things going on in pop culture at the time. Uh, so you can see where, as you mentioned, Mad Max, Crocodile Dundee, I mean... Even Yahoo Serious, there was a huge revival of uh, Australian culture. And uh, fortunately, it didn't affect Wolverine much beyond these isolated episodes. I prefer Wolverine as a Canuck. Thank you very much. <laughs> and Storm, uh, interestingly, doesn't take kindly to Wolverine dissing Kitty Pride, Creates a funny little storm cloud over him. Yes. Seems to terrify him. Kind of a wimp in this episode. Yeah, very much so. Then out of nowhere, we get the red light and the alarm. And uh, we see that there's a mutant alert. You would think that that thing's going off all the time, considering there's mutants in the house constantly. But it's I a guess bad mutant alert. I guess bad mutant alert. Yes. So they all mobilize and leave the danger room to find out what's going on. And here we get a commercial break. So why don't we also take a commercial break and we'll pay some bills and we'll be right back. If you're like me, you love stories. You get your audio player out. You put in your earbuds, and you listen to that audiobook for hours. But when you wake up, your ear holes are all infected. Sometimes they get so full of pus, your ear holes close up. Then what do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You buy yourself a Bowok. What's a Bowok? A Bowok's a new analog reading system. They take these compressed wood pulp sheets, and they actually print the words on it. You know, like an e-reader screen, but on paper. Who knew? And you never lose your place. They print little numbers up in the corner. Unbelievable. And they're fun to collect. So far, I got Hamlet, Grapes of Wrath, and the biography of Taboo from the Black Eyed Peas. And at $49.99 a piece, how can you go wrong? And unlike them stupid tablets, you don't need no batteries. So squirt some ointment in your ear holes, grab yourself a 50, go down to the store and buy yourself a Bowak. Oh, and tell them Stacy Q. Foddington the 4th sent you. Yeah, that's my name. Okay, and we're back. So, as we mentioned, the X-Men had mobilized to face whatever the mutant alert was uh, being triggered off by. The X-Men, interestingly, leave in two jets. The iconic Blackbird that we're familiar with from the, the second animated series, as well as a smaller jet, uh, which I guess it didn't fit everybody. Yeah, it was, it was in that one, Nightcrawler and somebody else. I didn't see it was in the other I one. I wasn't able to tell. And uh, I didn't see that one after this. It seems like they all were in uh, the Blackbird. I didn't see that other one come back for some reason. Maybe maybe it was a rental. It could have been a rental, yes. <laughs> Had to drop it back at Avis before they continued on the mission. Hey, you got a mutant alert, you might as well run some errands. That's right. Could be out and about anyway. So we see that the mutant alert was triggered off by Magneto and Juggernaut as a diversion, and this uh, allows Juggernaut to enter the X-Mansion. Yes, enter he did. Kitty Pride is still in the X-Mansion with Professor X, and they're, they're watching on the monitors. <laughs> Kitty says, who are these people? Professor X replies, Magneto, the master of magnetism, and, I'm sorry to say, my stepbrother Juggernaut. Kitty then asks, you know them? 
Key's not too much on the ball at this point. She's a little shell-shocked, I think. I, I'm guessing. She's supposed to be pretty intelligent in the comics, but... At the end of the episode, or near the end of the episode, I really was feeling Wolverine's point of view about Kitty Pride, <laughs> Especially after her actions in the next few minutes of this. The Aussie had some points. Yes, yeah, he wasn't too far off, I don't think, about not allowing her to be on the team. Then, uh, in this conversation, Professor X kind of reveals the, the stakes. Uh, he says, if Magneto wins, the human race shall become slaves of the evil mutants. One thing about this, about Magneto in this scene, as they're going and in invading the, uh, the mansion, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the movies, Magneto's helmet was basically there to not just also to be stylish headwear, of course, but its most important purpose was to block... Charles and other telepathic mutants from being able to control him or read his thoughts. Is that yes. correct? That is correct. Now, in this episode, I noticed that there is no problem by P Professor X to figure out what Magneto's up to and what he's after. Which version is correct? Is that what the helmet is for uh, in canon, or is it just a creation of the movies? That's No, that's what the helmet is for. I, it wasn't an issue here. Professor X uh, could definitely read his mind pretty quickly and figure out what, what he was there for. Yeah, found that curious. <laughs> yeah, I, as as did I. Professor X uh, reads his mind, as Sean said, and finds out that he, he's there for Cerebro's mutant power circuit, which seems to be some weird glowing orb that's a cross between a Death Star toy and a Fabergé egg. Yes. Kitty is so scared by the explanation that the humans will become slaves of the evil mutants that she kind of phases a little and shorts out the X-Mansion defenses. And Professor X yells at her, which is kind of nice. Um, <laughs> so I think it's justified at this point. Oh, of course. I think he's regretting inviting her to the uh, mansion. Magneto's powers, hence his name, is to control things of metal and magnetism. Mm -hmm. Being able to manipulate metal and bend it, you know, all sorts of things with metal. He is able to fly using this ball of uh, magnetism. Yeah, it's like a magnetic force field that he uses. Okay, so I, I'm okay with that, I guess. I, I understand. Sure. If you're okay with hoverboards, you should definitely be okay with Magneto flying well, around in a force field. I am definitely okay with hoverboards. So, <laughs> As we go on a little bit here, as they invade the uh, mansion, where he looks like he fires a beam out of his hand. Yeah. Um, where does that power come from? <laughs> <laughs> It seems like it's just a creation for this episode, possibly. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm no Faraday, but I could guess that it has to do with electromagnetic radiation. And that's what I'm assuming, too, because yeah, I, it doesn't make any other sense besides that. Yeah, I don't... I mean, that's something you see in the comics and the video games especially, uh, him firing beams out of his hands. It makes a pretty big hole in the, the wall. So Magneto and Juggernaut make their way into the mansion uh, pretty easily, Kitty grabs the circuit, and she runs away. She phases and runs through walls with it. She's confronted by Magneto. He recruits her on the spot. She refuses. And he almost certainly fatally electrocutes her at this point. Uh, he uses his power to uh, make wires come out of the wall and shock her. And she lets out a pretty gruesome scream and phases right into the floor as if she melted. I'm pretty sure those wires were coaxial cables for the cable system in the uh, X-Mansion, so I don't know why they would have shocked her, but okay, I guess we'll, we'll go with it. So then we get our second Stanley narration, where he explains that the X-Men are flying to the Deep Space Observatory for a showdown with Blob and Pyro. Now, the Deep Space Observatory, was this in Deep Space, or was this an Earthbound observatory? I had to watch this multiple times myself. They show 
the Blackbird jet, this time they only took one, flying around the Earth in space. So I was led to believe that this was a observatory in deep space. Yes, me too. But, however, it's not. Okay. Yeah, they just kind of flew really high to get around the Earth. Which is a valid way to do it. I mean, you can go above the atmosphere, and there are flights that do that, and it does go around the Earth faster. So we see here at the Deep Space Observatory that Pyro is holding a family captive in some sort of cage of fire. One family. <laughs> yeah. Captive. Was like the whole, uh, I guess maybe that was all who ran the Deep Space Observatory was one African-American family. I, I don't know. A little um, family business. I guess so. <laughs> I expected more people to be in trouble, but I guess not. We see here that the plan is for them to grab the tracking coordinates for the Scorpio Comet. Uh, the X-Men come in and confront them. We see Colossus trying to awkwardly pick up the blob. And we get a confrontation between the two broken English-speaking characters of the show. Now, where's the blob from? The blob is, uh... No, blob speaks English, but he kind of speaks in that incredible Hulk cadence. Bravo the Marvel for making a character for oversized people. <laughs> the blob. His basic uh, power is standing still and not being moved, apparently. I think they tried to explain it later on as his mutant power is to generate some sort of gravitational field. Extremely biased against bigger people. I mean, it's a big joke that they're so fat that they create their own gravitational field. <laughs> that's horrible. Yes. Uh, we see Pyro sets a fire between uh, himself and the X-Men. Storm puts it out with a mini windstorm, and then that seems to extinguish the cage as well. Nightcrawler hands a dropped doll to the little girl, and the little girl's father is still pretty prejudiced against mutants, even though he just had his life saved. And the funny part, and this is why I was wondering why, if this was in deep space or not, you hear cop cars outside. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I was figuring, if this is in deep space, I guess the space police are coming to save them. But as we determined, this was actually on Earth. Yeah, they didn't make that too clear. But in fact, they didn't even show the space station. There was no establishing shot or anything. Just They were just there. So we were kind of led to believe it was in outer space. And as you mentioned, the you hear the cop cars and uh, Storm says, you know, we have to get out of here. And so she sucks up everybody in a tornado and they all just kind of fly straight up out of frame. <laughs> I kind of laughed. It, it reminded me of that episode where Poochie was killed off on The Simpsons. Yes. I have to go now. My planet needs me. It just disappears. <laughs> it's, just, it's animated out, yeah. This is a hole in the ceiling. Let's assume that. That's where the yeah. telescope went out. Exactly, yeah. That's what it was. So then we get our first scene here of Asteroid M. This was in the comics. This was Magneto's asteroid base. We get our first uh, appearance here of Toad as he locks the computer tracking system onto the Scorpio Comet. He sounds an awful lot like Golem. Yeah, yeah. Um, and is really abused by Magneto. I mean, it looks like a jester. Looks horrible. That is his original costume. Oh, okay. From the uh, from the comics. He's not really the X-Men, the movie version, where he's kind of green and slimy with a long tongue, nor the X-Men Days of Future Past version of him, where he's kind of scaly and bumpy with goggles. This was his original, kind of like you said, the Renaissance jester costume. He kind of is like Igor from yeah. uh, Frankenstein. He refers to Magneto as master, very subservient, talks in that voice. It looks like a surf, too, and I'm looking at him. Like Beatles haircut going on. <laughs> what do we know about the little dragon creature that Magneto kicks? All right, so yeah, this is what I was going to mention. They really kind of shoehorned this uh, little dragon in here. There's a reason behind that. 
let me first mention here that the sound that the dragon makes, as well as Toad's voice, are both done here by Frank Welker, who is probably the single biggest name in animation of the last 30 years. He's done everything. He was Freddy and Scooby-Doo, and he's still doing many voices now. He's also uh, Santa's little helper on The Simpsons. He can do almost any animal sound, so you could see why they had him do that. But there's a very good reason why they put that dragon in here. This is Lockheed the Dragon, who was in the comics at this time. In the comics, Lockheed is a small alien dragon that befriends Kitty Pride during an X-Men mission on a planet colonized by the deadly aliens known as the Brood. Uh, Lockheed actually saves Kitty from the Brood and returns to Earth with her. So he's kind of like her pet in the comics at this point. They had to get him in there somewhere, I guess. I'm glad the uh, MSPCA isn't around because he is abused quite a bit by Magneto. Gives him a good kick. Many times, uh, yeah. They're really not setting a good example for kids. I guess they're trying to show that only villains would uh, treat a little creature like this. Well, honestly, if a child were to have a dragon come into their house, a small miniature dragon, I don't condone... I think kicking a dragon at this point would be fine, honestly. (laughs) Dogs, cats, no. If you see a dragon in your house, kids, please... Try to kick it. It's a fair fight, I guess. Yeah, exactly. In the comics, Lockheed is actually pretty intelligent. Belongs to a society of dragons and everything. But here, he's nothing more than uh, an annoying cat. Comic relief for the episode. We also get the moment where Magneto tells Toad to play in an airlock. And he goes to do it. (laughs) Doesn't understand sarcasm. So we cut back to the X-Mansion, which is now very much damaged. It has holes everywhere and it's smoldering. Uh, Professor X is lifelessly lying under a pile of rubble, so he's pretty much dead. But the X-Men come and remove the, uh, the rubble. Cyclops clears a table with his optic blast, which seems very dangerous. Yeah, I, I was going to comment on that, too. I didn't know that he had that power to focus it so well to be able to clear rubble off of a table. I guess it's whatever they need it to be. Sometimes it could be heat. Sometimes it could be a concussive force. Great moment here in the episode I always laughed at. Uh, they put Professor X up on the table, and he wakes up, and he sits up and moves and bends his leg. That cured his paralysis. You should be thankful to Magneto, then, for, for doing that. I think he's faking all the time, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, didn't Colossus ask, where do I, where should I put him? I believe he mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. Where do I put him? Just anywhere. Just throw him on the floor. It's fine. So we get the X-Men now. They confer, and, and Wolverine once again voices his concern. The X-Men don't have room for whiny brats. And Kitty says, just who are you calling whiny? And points up to him, and Wolverine backs up like he's, uh, like he's afraid of getting uh, slapped by her. I don't think he was expecting that kind of reaction from Kitty Pryde at this point. So we cut back to Asteroid M. And Magneto uses the Cerebro power circuit to increase his power, his own power, and he uses it to redirect the Scorpio comet towards Earth. I guess there's enough iron content in the comet that he's able to do that? Sure. I don't know. I'm assuming, yeah. It kind of go contrary to his plan of enslaving humanity if all of humanity was dead by a (laughs) comet hitting the planet. I didn't understand Magneto's viewpoint of the mutants taking over Earth wouldn't they also be mostly killed if a comet hit the planet too? Yes. I understand how they would survive that. I mean, some of them obviously would, most likely, but wouldn't it be good overall for the planet to have a comet hit it? Yeah, not much to rule over there. Yeah. We see at the X-Mansion, Professor X wakes up, conveniently knowing the entire plan. 
angry Aussie Wolverine doesn't want Kitty to join them on their space mission. The kid stays here, she'll just get in the way. And then this is where Kitty reveals, I'm not a kid, I'm 14. Yeah, that was an eye-opener for me. Before this whole thing started, they probably should have just sent her home and said, we'll reschedule for another time. Just just the legalities involved. Oh my goodness. Of, uh, <laughs> child endangerment, and uh, I came in, and Nightcrawler trying to uh, uh, harass her. Uh, this, the lawsuits are staggering, in my viewpoint. They just keep stacking up. Yeah, very much so. So everybody agrees Kitty's too young to fly into space to try to destroy the world's most powerful mutant. So all of the X-Men leave, and they leave Kitty by herself. In the mansion, which is now probably still on fire in some areas. <laughs> and has no defenses. Exactly. So the X-Men fly into space to Asteroid M. They put on their spacesuits, and uh, they have little rocket packs on the back. They fly untethered into space, so fortunately they know what they're doing. It's revealed that Kitty stowed away on the ship in one of the lockers. Professor X knew it the whole time. And she conveniently, after she said she's doing it, no matter what he says, she doesn't use the airlock, which is, uh, I guess, a nice feature of her power. She just fades right through the, the hole of the uh, Blackbird <laughs> <laughs> to go meet the rest of the group. Magneto now spots the X-Men through a window and immediately punches Lockheed the Dragon and fires a magnetic bolt at his own computer equipment. He's got some anger management issues. You'll notice now the X-Men run through a long corridor into Asteroid M. Wolverine's spacesuit is gone. Yeah, I noticed that. I was going to mention that, too. <laughs> he decided not to keep his spacesuit, apparently. Too cumbersome. Yeah. Colossus also decided to rip his off when he was confronting Juggernaut. We see now they're confronted by Pyro, who is an Australian character. And in case you were wondering if he was Australian or not, he drops the line... Good day! Welcome to Asteroid M! Don't you just love a good Bobby? <laughs> you, you think, you know, him and Wolverine were really compatriots at this point. You think that the uh, voices should have been really flipped. Pyro really should have had the more thick Australian accent. And I should note, neither of the actors are Australian. <laughs> so Dazzler takes care of Pyro, I guess. Again, it looks like by... he's just being annoyed. I, you know, yeah. flashes a light in his face. Yeah, that would annoy me too. I should say Dazzler distracts Pyro. Yes, that's more of a better term. <laughs> then Toad jumps down on top of Wolverine. And in case you were wondering if Wolverine is Australian or not, he calls Toad a dingo for no reason. And Wolverine traps Toad in kind of like a cave, because they are inside of an asteroid. With gravity. Yeah, and the Toad asks to be let out very vocally. And Wolverine decides instead of joining the group further on in their mission, he'll just stay there. Yeah, why, you know... He just has to watch Toad. Sure. It was interesting with the fight between um, Juggernaut and Colossus, too, that they're ripping up duck work. That was probably <laughs> vital to the operation of the asteroid, I'm assuming, pulling off the ceiling to, to fight with. Cyclops then confronts the White Queen, which is kind of interesting because a few decades later, it, that's a character that he's going to be romantically involved with. Nightcrawler teleports past Blob and faces Magneto, who tells him that the comet will hit the Earth in three minutes. Kitty phases up through the floor and grabs Magneto's arm as he's just about to attack Nightcrawler, and Lockheed saves the day by biting Magneto's ankle, and he ends up firing the blast up at his power circuit assembly and damages it. And then he also says that now there's no stopping the comet from hitting the Earth, because the, the power circuit is damaged. And he gets one more good kick on Lockheed as well. 
Professor X comes up with a weird plan. He tells Kitty, the 14-year-old, to run up to the most powerful mutant on Earth and tackle him to the ground while he's all electrified. Keeping in mind, she has no training at this point. Just a kid that got a, an invitation to come and visit. She shouldn't have been able to survive phasing out into space without proper knowing the operation of the jetpack she now had on. Professor X also tells Nightcrawler to run up to those live wires and reattach them with your body. Your body will recharge the circuit. And he does without any hesitation. Now, the combination of those two things somehow use Magneto's power to change the comet's course towards Asteroid M. And the only caveat is that Nightcrawler now has to stay there or the comet will go back towards Earth. For some reason. For some reason. He has to complete, still complete the circuit. I, I would assume he'll be electrocuted long before this happens as there's much voltage going through his body at this point. Oh, yeah, he's dead. He's fine. (laughs) He's dead, Kitty's dead, and Professor X is dead at this point. But he's sitting there, and he basically tells them to get out of there, and Magneto takes off at this point. He flies them all to Earth in a magnetic force field. No problems. So Nightcrawler tells Kitty that everybody must leave, and instead of spacesuits, the X-Men are now flown from Asteroid M back to the Blackbird jet in a force field, and I... I watched the video a whole bunch of times. I couldn't figure out if this was Storm doing this or Dazzler. There's no way Dazzler's doing this, first of all. Well, there's no sound in space, so she would have no ability to use her powers. That's right. I'm guessing it was Storm. So Storm electrifies, I guess, the rest of the team, killing them. <laughs> really, no one should be alive in, by the end of this episode. Magneto really should win. Earth should be destroyed. I thought it was funny now that basically Professor X now says to Nightcrawler to stay there until the last second, and then to teleport out into space. Teleport, I think, onto the Blackbird, right? They're they're hoping that he would do. I was, yeah, I was wondering about that myself. I think the idea was that he was supposed to teleport directly back to the jet. Pretty tough to do. Yeah, and here's another idea, another uh, concept I knew about Nightcrawler. Doesn't he have to be able to see where he's teleporting to teleport? Is that part of his canon, or is that something they made up for the movies? He does need to be able to see it for his own confidence, because, you know, he could end up teleporting into something solid and dying. So he wants to make sure, like, you know, if it's a long corridor, he could probably teleport to the end because he knows it's safe. At this point, if it's just to save his life, he might as well go for it. But yeah, I think he can pretty much teleport within a reasonable range wherever he'd like. Yeah, I guess he assumed that space is pretty much empty, so he'd be fine just teleporting willy-nilly into wherever. Yeah. That probably explains why he didn't land in the Blackbird either. <laughs> yeah, too too narrow a target, really. Yeah. So he waits a little too long and teleports into Earth's atmosphere where he begins to fall and he starts to burn up. <laughs> Again, he should have been quite dead at this point. So Professor X orders them to fire grappling beams, which um, I guess are just ropes with claws <laughs> at the end. Kind of makes the beam uh, aspect of it a little misleading. The beams go right up to him, and they try to grab him, and he disappears. So Professor X immediately declares him dead. Sorry, he didn't make it. So everyone now instantly starts grieving, but Nightcrawler appears, smoldering, minus his spacesuit. I guess he ditched the spacesuit somehow. And he shows up in the locker. The locker uh, is a very popular place for hiding in this episode. And they, they talk some more about, I believe at this point, about there's jubilation with Colossus and Nightcrawler. Everybody's happy to see him. And Colossus grabs Nightcrawler and hugs him and says, My little Davarish, you're not dead after all, no? <laughs> and Davarish is Russian for comrade. Oh, 
Why didn't you just say comrade is beyond me, but... I, okay. I don't know. <laughs> and now Kitty is not scared of Nightcrawler anymore. That That's kind of consistent with the comics where she originally was afraid of him, understandably, because he has this demonic appearance, but uh, as she gets to know him as a good person, she realizes that he's nothing to be afraid of. And don't be afraid of anybody else who's different than you, kids. That's the message for today. That's right. That's what hitting play is all about. Yes. Uh, I think Professor X wanted to kill him, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's my theory. He was hoping he was dead. You know, he doesn't like her for some reason. I guess not. Um, you said some, You had something about Wolverine's blades. Yeah, Wolverine's blades were very interesting in this part of the episode where he's, I guess, sharpening them when they're de- having this discussion right now. Yeah. They look like needles at this point. Earlier in the episode, they look more like blades. Interesting um, animation. Yeah, very, very off-model. Yeah. They draw a lot of attention to him, too, because he is rubbing them back and forth, kind of sharpening them. So we finish now with a Stanley narration. He says, Yes, the X-Men have won, but only for now. Magneto is still out there, waiting, planning, plotting the destruction of the human race. But whatever the challenge, whatever the peril... The X-Men will be there. And we see the X-Men standing on Earth, larger than life, as the sun <laughs> rises behind them. Professor X's huge face looming behind them. Yes. Kitty Pride still wearing those horrible pants. <laughs> and then the credits roll with an instrumental version of the theme and various freeze frames of the episode we just watched. Which is funny because the freeze frames were also there. Basically, it gives you the whole episode rundown uh, in the intro and also in the outro here. <laughs> Gives you the whole story, basically. So this was a show that I always loved because I was introduced to it uh, at a young age. But going into this now, how did you like this episode? It, it was interesting. Again, I much prefer the Fox series to this series for obvious reasons that we talked about in tonight's episode. Yeah. It, it was a nice little pilot episode, I guess. Um, it has its obvious flaws like most pilot episodes do. Animation was was pretty good for the year, especially in 1989. Interesting that it wasn't picked up at this point, but again, like you mentioned, there's so many legal issues going on. But then they they must have seen the value in it to really start the awesome uh, mid-90s X-Men series. Yeah, if it wasn't for this pilot kind of just being left in the dust, really, we probably would have never had that great X-Men series of the the 90s. Now, let me ask you, Scott. I'm trying to remember the X-Men series from the 90s. What characters did they not carry over to that series and what characters did they add of the base group that we see in this episode nightcrawler was not part of the main team mm-hmm. uh he did appear later on in the series as a mutant that they ran into dazzler as well they introduce her later on in their dark phoenix saga which is more consistent with the comics in the mid-90s show we also don't have kitty pride in fact that pilot episode of the x-men 90 series night of the sentinels part one involves jubilee being introduced to the x-men i remember that yeah very similar to how kitty pride was introduced to the x-men here basically serving as the young kid on the team and really the entry point. So we kind of joined the team through her. Jubilee was pretty new in the comics at the time, so she kind of took over that Kitty Pride role for the uh, 90s audience. And the uh, the one character that I know was added, which is honestly my favorite X-Man, was Gambit, who oh, yes. is my favorite character, probably in the Marvel Universe, honestly. I love Gambit. I love the character in the, in the cartoon. One of the reasons I think I really was interested in the cartoon was Gambit. And really a shame that he only has one character in the theatrical movies as in uh, Wolverine Origins. 
I'm not sure if they're planning on bringing him into the big screen in other future X-Men movies. Well, the rumor is Channing Tatum is going to play him in the next X-Men movie, X-Men Apocalypse, in 2016. I hope so, because he's such a good character. I love Gambit. Yeah, Gambit's a, Gambit's a great character. He actually made his first appearance in Uncanny X-Men number 266, which was August 1990. So a few months after this episode aired, Gambit made his uh, debut. I'm kind of glad they didn't have him in this episode. He didn't appear first uh, before this because he probably would have had an Australian accent, <laughs> just like Wolverine, <laughs> and instead of his Cajun accent. So I'm glad that they didn't ruin him for me at that point. I also want to mention that even though this ended up being a standalone episode, it had some commercial tie-ins. In 1989, Paragon Software introduced the video game Madness and Murder World, featuring this original X-Men lineup. Uh, that was released for DOS, Commodore 64, and Amiga. In 1990, Marvel released the Pride of the X-Men graphic novel, which featured art from the show as the panels of the comic. In 1990 also, LJN Toys released the Uncanny X-Men game for NES. This featured also this lineup in these costumes, except Iceman was substituted for Dazzler for some reason. Rightly so, in my opinion. <laughs> and in 1992, Konami introduced X-Men the Arcade Game. Now, this was a game that I was very much into. It had two versions. One featured a standard cabinet. The other one featured a double-wide cabinet. It featured one monitor on the left and another on the right down in the cabinet with a mirror projecting up to make a long screen. I do remember that game and playing it in the arcade. Very, very cool game. And uh, Dazzler was actually one of the better characters because her mutant powers, she could fire a light beam at the ground and it made this giant dome that covered a wide area. And once again, this franchise mishandling the Wolverine character, Wolverine's mutant power in that game was to kind of hit his claws together and it created this boomerang-like laser that fired around the screen. Sure, why not? And that video game is also still available now on the Xbox Live Store as well as on the Apple App Store, which I, I have both versions. Excellent. I'll have to look at the F store, definitely. One uh, final note that I want to bring out about this is that, speaking about the comics, they have different Earths that they refer to, so you can keep all the timelines straight. Regular Marvel continuity is known as Earth 616. The official continuity of this episode is known as Earth 652975. Way up there. <laughs> it's like a phone number. Yeah. It's a song, I think, by uh, Tommy Tutone back in the 80s. <laughs> it's Jenny's Earth. Oh, okay. I guess a question I wanted to bring out, kind of relating just to the X-Men in general, and I, I thought of this when I was watching this, was if you could be one mutant or have one mutant's attributes, what would you choose to be, Scott? Oh, man. I know it's a tough one. But, I mean, get, like, I guess what attributes would you not want to have? Or you can even pick, you know, what mutant you would want to be and not want to be. Let's start there. Oh, that's so tough. Well, you know, when I was the, of the age when... I was watching this. I loved Cyclops for some reason. I wanted to have the optic blast and everything. Now looking back at that, forget it. I don't want to have to have this apparatus on my head at all times and only be able to see things through the color red. I guess Wolverine's power would be kind of cool to have, you know, the the ability to heal quickly. Hmm. Even I though basically you're immortal and you can't die and everyone dies around you that you love. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's tough. But paper cuts go right away. True. And bolts to the head too. <laughs> I guess in terms of things I wouldn't want, there's, um, you know, like Jubilee's power seems to be kind of a waste. Although, you know, I'd have fun shooting off fireworks out of my hands at night. 
But uh, probably I wouldn't want anything that's kind of like disfiguring something that looks weird like Nightcrawler. It seems as though there's just too much prejudice and you'd have to go into hiding. You know, I had exactly the same thought. I was thinking about this, like, what mutant would I want to be? Definitely not something like Beast or Nightcrawler, where there's no way you're not being noticed wherever you go. Cyclops, the same thing. First of all, I think Cyclops is a jerk. <laughs> in the movies and in the show, too. And the fact that he has to wear these stupid sunglasses all the time makes him more, more like a jerk to people. You know, he goes into the mall, he's wearing sunglasses. And uh, it's and... a ruby quartz visor, thank you. It, well... They're sunglasses. They're Ray-Bans. <laughs> and, you know, people are looking at them like, this guy's a jerk. I wouldn't want to deal with that. Like you said, you take those off and you're shooting laser beams everywhere. Wolverine, obviously, for the, the pain involved in his life. The guy had a horrible life yeah. all around. So, again, my choice would be Gambit. I like to be Gambit. He's a ladies' man and he... <laughs> uh, is that a mutant power, though? Yes, it is. He's <laughs> suave as part of his power. You didn't know that, did you? No, I'll, I'll be Gambit, too, then. And yeah, that's right. Everybody should be Gambit. He could throw cards and make him explode, and he's a good poker player. And I would not want to be uh, either Jubilee or Dazzler, because their powers are stupid. Well, that'll pretty much do it for this episode. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, look well fanfiction, whatever you have for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com. Or you can always talk to us on Twitter, at hittingplay. Now, Sean, do you have any plugs? Uh, I guess the plugs I have, Scott, are just to, um, I guess, comment on uh, Hitting Play, either on iTunes or on uh, Podbean, where it's hosted. Please, we'd like to hear your feedback about how we can improve the show, add features, that sort of thing. And I'd like to plug our combined YouTube site, which is Three Blind Mice in YouTube, and we do a lot of different video game, mostly Minecraft playthroughs, and also LilyPution22 for her channel, even though she's not here. Does she have any final words, by the way? Yeah, I got Lily back here, Sean. Um, you can ask her what her favorite peanut butter is. Okay, uh, I don't know how that applies to anything, but Lily, what's your favorite peanut butter? Uh, Skippy. That's How, how about you, Sean? <laughs> just kidding. Oh, she's just kidding. She's a riot. <laughs> I'm on Twitter, at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. As well as, uh, I have a Vine account where I do some flip page cartoons. You can check me out there, at MC and Friends on Vine. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out, and if you do, we'll give you a shout-out on the show in the very prestigious MP3 format. Alright, well, we have been Sean and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. Good night, everyone. Until next time, our little devourishes. Good night. <laughs>